Merry Christmas, guys. Yeah, scary. There's a menti leg, so you can immediately ask questions. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season. And we thank you that this is an opportunity for us to come back, to look at Christ, and to renew ourselves. And we pray, Father, that what we study today, what we, what we hear today, will be an exhortation that comes from you and your word. And so help us, Father, to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was young, uh, my parents decided to throw my little sister a birthday party. So my mom told me that I can invite my friends over for the party. Now, I had maybe two to three good friends uh, who will come over to my house to play, and they know my sister. However, I was a young kid then, and being granted the power to invite people for my sister's birthday went to my head a little. So I went to the playground, and I grandly proclaimed that my sister is having a birthday party, and they were all invited. <laughs> now, I don't really know these kids. And these kids decided, oh, it's a kanduri or a feast. And so they, in turn, invited their friends. And we suddenly ended up having 20-plus kids suddenly showing up for my sister's birthday. Now, none of them know her. Most of them don't even know me. Well, when my parents saw that, my dad quickly went out to get KFC so that everyone would have food. And while my dad was out and my mom was overwhelmed with things, the kids got super excited and they did whatever they wanted to do. Some of them got to the cake in the fridge and they saw that, wow, beautiful wafer flowers on them, decided to take it out and eat it. Some decided to poke their fingers into the cake and eat some of the icing. The other kids took out all the toys, dumped it on the floor and started playing with it, making a huge mess in the hall. I vaguely remember one kid jumping on the sofa as if it's a trampoline. And throughout all this, my sister was just sitting in the corner alone, since she didn't know anyone there. None of the kids played with her, or even bothered to get to know her, since they were here with their friends. So, the celebration started, and I had to watch her cut a cake that has already been mutilated. She was quite sad, because it didn't really feel like she was special on that day, and she still reminds me of this to this day. <laughs> However, for the kids who came, they had a great time. They got to eat and party and play with different toys. They had a nice place to hang out with their friends. They celebrated and they rejoiced. But surely, we can see that while there were lots of joy for them, it wasn't really a birthday celebration, right? Now, what's the relevance of this to Christmas? Now, Christmas is a time of rejoicing and celebrating. That is good, and we should do both of these things. But you can see from my example that we can rejoice and celebrate in such a way that we can be like those kids that I invited. Celebrating for your own sake and not for the person being celebrated and therefore miss out on the point of it all. So this Christmas season, are we focusing on having a great time and enjoying the celebration with our family, 
but we leave Christ outside of our celebration and therefore totally miss out on the point. Now, done correctly, our Christmas celebration is a time to draw nearer to God, to experience joy in that relationship that we have with Him. In fact, Christmas is an opportunity for us to worship God, isn't it? Worship doesn't only mean ritual, silent seriousness. We can worship Him as we celebrate Christmas with the right heart, right? But oftentimes, we will have the worship part down, which we think is the coming to church part. And now that you have checked it off your list, the temptation is next to go out and enjoy yourself. Now, I want to help you see that all of today and the following days that we celebrate Christmas can be a part of our worship of God if we have the right heart. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against celebration. Like I said, it's a good thing. But what I am saying is we should make sure that we have our heart set correctly so that our celebration, eating, drinking, rejoicing is in line with the meaning of Christmas. So for us to have the right heart about Christmas, we need to understand the theology of Christmas. We need to remember why Christmas is so important to Christians so that we do not think of it as a mere birthday celebration for someone important. And I think that is something that our passage for today from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11 can help us to do. Now, this is part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, and it's meant to encourage and to give them examples and to help them change their hearts and their mind to be more in line with what Paul says is to be the heart of a Christian. So let's turn there and have a look. The passage begins in verse 5 with an exhortation. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what this verse is telling us is that we should conform our mind to match the mind of Christ. That is the way that He thinks and He acts. So we are called to be more like Him. So therefore, verses 6 onwards is meant to show us the mindset of Christ so that we can understand His character, how He thinks, and how He makes His decisions. We are to see that, and we are to learn and emulate that in our daily decisions. And this way, we'll have this mind which Christ has. So if we understand that, we want to see that going forth into the rest of the passage is not just about what Christ did, but also what his actions teach us about him. So with that, we come to verse 6 and 7. We see in verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now we see here, right, that Christ is in the form of God. Now, the word translated as form here, the Greek word is morphe, and it's not talking about appearances, it's talking about nature. So this nature describes his very being, the part of himself that is essential in making him who he is. And so there's no argument then 
that scripture considers that Jesus, in his very nature, his innermost being, what he is, is God. Yet today, we see in popular media, where they attempt to portray Jesus as just a man who was declared as God about 300 years later after his death through the Council of Nicaea. And this happened because of political and religious reasons, they claim. And these people will claim that Christians before that did not believe that Jesus was God. Or sometimes we hear from our Muslim friends that Jesus was a great prophet, but he was just a man and not God. Your Bibles are corrupted. Now, verse 6 to 11 is actually Paul quoting a part of either a hymn, a poetry, or an early church liturgy. There's a poetic aspect to how this is written. It's like a song. And so scholars have suggested that this is actually a quote from Paul from what the church has been declaring in their corporate worship since the early days of its foundation. Some people place it to very close to the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. So the point is, this is not a later addition. This was what Christians who saw the risen Jesus proclaimed. So the early Christian community and the Bible clearly declares that Jesus is God. And there's no way to go around this, to then go around and say that Jesus was just a highly exalted man. And so this is why the Gospel of Matthew declares, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what Jesus would declare before Abraham was, I am. Colossians 1.15 says, that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 teaches us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the words of his power. So you see, there's no going around the idea that Jesus is God himself who came in the flesh. Now, this was talking about Jesus before his incarnation. And so there's more to add on to what we learn about the person of Jesus as we move to our passage. So we see next, right, that despite being in nature God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this language of grass here is not talking about something that he's aspiring towards. Jesus is not someone who's seeking to become equal to God. That's not the kind of grasping that's implied here. The grasping here in this context is about holding on to all costs. And the point is Jesus was willing to let go of something. And as we continue to read, we see that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So we can understand that this is talking then of Jesus letting go of something so that he can become a servant. Now, he didn't stop being God. He didn't let go of being God because we know that being God is his very nature. And that's not something that he can just give up because if you do that, it won't be him anymore, right? The passage has made it very clear that he is in very nature God. And that means he is God and will always be God. So that does leave us with a question, right? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, what Jesus let go of was his right, that is what he deserved by nature, his natural place in heaven. And it's deserved because of his nature, of who he is. 
So this means he divested himself of his deserved glory. The glory that was his as God the Son since the beginning of time in order to serve God, the Father's wishes. So the incarnation then is to be better understood as a king taking off his robes, dressing up as a beggar, and then living among them so that he can help them, and he no longer benefits from his riches. But he is still king. So Jesus did not see his glory then as something to hold on to. He was willing to let it go, humble himself to take on the form of a servant, a slave, in order to do the will of his father. And that's why John prays, sorry, that's why Jesus prays in John 17 verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Next, we see that his decision then led him to being born in the likeness of man. In other words, he who was beyond any glory we can imagine now becomes a lowly human. So Jesus came in human flesh as a slave. Let that really sink in. He came in as a slave, though he was by nature fully God. He didn't appear to be a man. He really took on flesh and became as we are. To use the metaphor earlier, the king didn't just wear a roughed up new clean cloth, make it look dirty and then pretend to be a beggar. He walked away from the palace and he took up a dirty urine-stained beggar's rag, wore it and sat with the beggars. Thus we see here the sacrifice that Jesus made. And we also see that Jesus having the nature of God and now the nature of man perfectly united in him. And he is then incarnated as that baby Jesus. So as you think back of the narrative of the birth in the manger and you see the sweet little baby Jesus alone in the manger, know that we are beholding God himself. What would our response be if we were there and we knew this? We would bow down in worship, amazed that God would do such a thing, won't we? Now, don't go bowing down when you see a nativity scene. That would be idolatry. But perhaps we can tone down a little on the, the cuteness of the baby and the sweetness of a newborn baby's innocence that we think of when we see that picture of the Jesus baby in the manger. And instead be awestruck by this reminder that God has so humbled himself for the sake of his lowly creatures. The nativity then is a sober and serious declaration of how amazing God is. The image of Jesus on the manger should then call us to humble ourselves before God, to not deal with him with arrogance or pride. For Jesus himself defined then what humbleness and servant-heartedness looks like through his incarnation. If there's anyone who has any ground to kind of you know, be face-to-face -face and proud to God, it would have been Jesus. 
but he gave us that example. And so this is what it means for us to have the mind of Christ. So we should remember this as we come to celebrate the very act of Jesus humbling himself as we celebrate Christmas. So the image of the baby in the manger should not only inspire, oh, so cute from us, it should also kindle in us a sense of amazement. An amazement that leads our mouth to open and proclaim how magnificent is this God that we worship, how worthy of worship is He. This should be something that we want to proclaim to the ends of the earth, shouldn't it? So, does Christmas make you want to proclaim this to others? How many have you told so far? Okay, still early, uh, smack one can get away with it. Smack two, I'll press them a bit. <laughs> so, we see that Jesus, God himself, entered into creation to taste the bitterness of life, to experience it up and down himself, and he was willing to humble himself as a slave so he can be Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. So we find Jesus then in the form of a human. So what does he do with that? Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see that in coming as a slave, in humbling himself to be born as a human man, Jesus was just getting started. Jesus lived a perfect and obedient life, obeying the Father in all things, doing the will of the Father in all things. But the real test of his obedience is seen in his willingness to go to his death on that cross. His perfect obedience throughout his life makes him a worthy sacrifice. So that through him, the problem of sin and death will be solved. Through his worthy death, the world will be redeemed and made new. And this then the image of the servant of the Lord who comes and does all things well and glorifies his father that the Old Testament tells us about. And as we look at this servanthood, we see that it wasn't easy. Jesus himself prayed that he may be spared the agony of the cross. Such was the fear and agony that he had to endure before submitting himself to the cross. Yet, on that night at the Garden of Gethsemane, he still prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And so this helps us to see that in learning from the mind of Christ, we too should adopt that same heart, that same mind. The Christian life is not about behaving in a certain way in order to obtain blessing and joy from God, but it is about humble, servant-hearted obedience. This obedience isn't one that only asks for simple, nice, and sweet things that cost us nothing. Following God may mean giving up on everything, maybe even your life. And that is what we see in the persecuted church and in the life of the martyrs throughout Christian history. And this is not foolishness, friends. It is not defeat. But rather, this is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. So not our wills be done, but His. Look at the baby at the manger and see that He is meant to go to the cross to die. To celebrate Christmas then 
is to remember the servant-hearted example of Christ and to have that mind so that you are changed to serve God with more and more of yourself, even if it means your death. So a good question to reflect on this Christmas is to see how are you serving God in a pleasing way? Are you growing in your love and obedience for Him? Are you prioritizing Him above your other commitments and desires. We are called to have the mind of Christ. And so in response, we want to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Romans 12 teaches us, right, that renewal of our mind leads us to offer our whole body as a living sacrifice to Him. So how are you doing that? Does Christmas then point your gaze to Christ? and help you to resolve to live more and more for Him with every passing day? Or is Christmas going to be a time to just party it up and enjoy only? Because if you do that, without a determination to serve the Lord, then you are not celebrating Him with thankfulness for His coming. You are celebrating simply because you have a desire for fun. So we come then to the final part, verse 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see in verse 9, God responds to the obedience of Christ by exalting him. He gives Jesus the name above every name. And this isn't God giving him a nickname. Instead, it's about God giving him glory and honor. This is about the lordship of Jesus. So because of his faithfulness, Jesus is exalted as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And this bestowing of honor upon Jesus has an implication to all of us because in verse 10 we see that everyone will respond by submitting to Jesus and declaring that he is Lord. Every person in heaven, that is all those who have died, trusting in Jesus as Lord, the angelic host of heaven, every person on earth, those who are still alive when Jesus comes again, and every person under the earth, those who have rejected Jesus, died in their unbelief. And this is scary if you take a minute to consider. If you are among those who are in the earth, but have not submitted to him, when the time comes, when Jesus judges over the world, you will still confess him as Lord, you will bend your knee to him, even as you join those under the earth who have rejected Jesus and died. You will realize that it is too late to repent and turn to him. Only judgment awaits them. And we are told here, that God's glory is revealed through that confession that Jesus is Lord. To those in heaven and on earth who trust in Jesus, they will declare this Lordship with joy and celebration. And that celebration will dwarf even your Christmas celebration. Right? And it will be a time of great rejoicing as all sickness, pain and suffering is dealt with. God will wipe away every tear. But... For those who live their own lives, not willing to submit to Jesus now, they have no choice but to confess that He is Lord, even as He sits in judgment over them. 
So in both salvation and judgment, God reveals himself as the just God who punishes the wicked. And at the same time, the loving God who forgives those who draw near to him. And Jesus is the one that allows for both of this to happen. So if you don't trust Jesus today, what you are hearing here is a warning to call you to come find out more. So come, let's have this conversation about this topic. So at least you'll have certainty that you have considered the warning carefully. So how do these words help us to rethink our Christmas celebration? Firstly, Christmas isn't about the first coming of Christ alone. It should point forward to the expectation of the second coming as well. So if your Christmas is just about the babe born in Bethlehem, you also need to point to the coming of that same Jesus as Lord and Judge over all the earth. This would mean that when you talk about the reason for Christmas, we don't stop at the birth of Jesus, but also go on to his atoning death at the cross, the offer to everyone of salvation under his name. And we must also warn that of which he came to save people from their own sinful nature that leads them to live their lives in rejection of God. We put out little nativity displays. We mentioned the baby Jesus in our conversation. But what elements in our Christian celebration of Christmas points to the second coming? Very little, I suspect, right? It'd be really hard to have a Christmas dinner when the topping of a Christmas tree is a crucified man. Greeting cards won't work if it's a picture of a bleeding, dying man on a cross or a warning of hell on the front cover, right? So while we can't do much about the imagery we share, and it's probably wise that we don't do it that way, we can be gospel-centered people who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christmas especially should be a time when we are intentional in preaching the gospel. Our goal then in getting people to come join us for Christmas celebration should be so that they can hear the gospel. And while many people look at Christmas as a way to be kind and nice to people, do not hope to preach the gospel through your kindness to people alone. They don't need to be inspired to become kinder and nicer people. Kind and nice people who do not have Christ will be confessing him under the earth the place that we call the lake of fire, hell. Kindness does not save. Good deeds does not save. Only Jesus saves. So they need the gospel. So what we need to do is to proclaim the gospel with our mouths, even if it causes us relationships and their respect. Christ came and suffered faithfully, going unto death, even death on a cross. And if we are ashamed to proclaim these things, then we really have a problem with our hearts. So please, don't hold back on the gospel in this season. Don't waste this Christmas season. It is not merely about enjoying yourself with good food and good company. And those are good things. But do it with thanksgiving and true appreciation for Jesus. So as you gather with your family to celebrate Christmas, don't ignore your church community because you think Christmas is a special family time to be spent with your immediate family apart from others. Many will take this time to retreat, spend time with their immediate family to the detriment of gathering together with other believers. 
But remember, Jesus came to create a new family, his family. And he paid such a terrible cost for it. So don't neglect them this season. Especially those who will be celebrating Christmas alone. Like those who have non-Christian families or are apart from their families during this season. You may have plans with immediate family and that's fine. But also look out for those who need some extra encouragement this season. So as you celebrate Christmas, look to the baby in the manger. See him as God humbling himself for the sake of the gospel. Look to the wood of the Christmas tree and remember him who hung on that tree, becoming a curse for your sake. Look to the giving of gifts to see the gift of his own son for our sake and give others the most important gifts that they need, the message of the gospel. The socks that people always get doesn't compare to the gospel, right? Look at the joy that you feel when you see that wonderful food and fellowship during Christmas time and see the salvation and eternal life of joy and blessing that Christ has come to offer through his incarnation. And as you see these things in your Christmas season, as you know that Christ is the true reason for this season, won't you love him and serve him more? And as you hold on to this thought, Throughout Christmas, see that your celebration is not just a celebration, but it's worship of the God who has humbled himself so that you may live and grow. Be willing to sacrifice more for him. Be willing to proclaim him to the world. Be willing to obey all the things that he has commanded you to do. And through all these things, have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to celebrate this year's Christmas meaningfully. Help us to reset our minds, help us to see Christ and what he has done, and let Christ be central to our celebration. And therefore, open our mouths, Father, and may the gospel flow out. Take away the fear that we have, the discomfort and worries that we have. Give us courage so that we are able to do this. And let us, Father, think of Christ in all the things that we do this time and help us then, Father, to do it for your glory, for his sake. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Merry Christmas.